Well, uh, as we now look at our, our new sermon series, uh, one thing I was thinking about this past, actually just past last night was um, we have had some wonderful events already this, this past fall happening here at West Meadows. One of them was yesterday. Uh, some of you may have been here to help volunteer and participate in a drive-in movie that took place with our community leagues out front here. We're hoping to share some more information with you about that. Uh, two great things about that. Number one, we have popcorn left over. So when you leave today, there's popcorn. <laughs> if you want some popcorn, feel free to grab some. Uh, the other thing is that there are hundreds of people from our community here. It's probably the, hands down, the biggest community supporting event we've done since the start of COVID. So we're really excited to be able to partner with that. Part of the reason that we could do that is because the sun is going down a little earlier in the day. And, and perhaps, like me, you have thought recently, it sure feels like fall. Anyone else maybe notice that? Say that to their spouse? Yeah. Feels like falls in the air, perhaps you may have said to somebody. Temperatures are cooler, frost warnings on the weather network. The leaves change just kind of like that, it seems. They suddenly change. The biggest indication that, that fall is here is, I think, uh, when I was at Costco and I saw the Christmas decorations. That's it's like, oh, snow's coming. Costco's getting ready. So, and so, you know, from the beginning of the time, People have looked to different markers to identify the changing of seasons and, and the changing of events. This is not a new thing. We, we do it in our own lives. People have done it throughout time. Uh, and one of the real timeless things that people have looked to to identify the changing of seasons and times is to birds. Now, I'm not sure if you know this, but if you go back to ancient Rome, there are these people who are referred to as auspucs. And they were, which is basically a Latin word that means bird seer. And what they would do is they would watch the flights and the feeding patterns of birds, and when they saw the right combination, they would determine that there's favorable conditions coming. But when they saw other patterns, they'd say, well, that, that spells trouble for us. And I think we do something kind of similar to these auspucs, don't we? Anyone look at the sky this week and also say, well, the geese are getting ready. <laughs> geese are getting ready to fly south. They're gathering in larger groups. They're practicing, they're flying with their new feathers that came in with the change of temperatures. They're honking, they're, they're louder, they're a little bit more aggressive, pointing their noise, noses to the sky. These are all indications of a change of season. The fall's coming. And then we respond to it by going, well, I, I better turn on the furnace. I better swap the rake for the shovel. Better get ready for Thanksgiving because we see these indicators that something is coming. Well, that's the same thing, really, in a way that these Roman auspucs did. And that's actually where we get the word auspicious from. Have you heard the word auspicious before? The word auspicious comes from that background of these bird seers in ancient Rome. You see, it refers to, the word auspicious refers to a set of favorable conditions that indicate future success. Maybe you've had an auspicious beginning to the year. If you were at school in the last couple of weeks and you thought, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have good grades this year. And so you, you indeed, you did. You studied and you had your first test and you aced it. And you're thinking, that's an auspicious beginning to the year ahead of me. Or perhaps you wanted to start running before the snow comes. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do that half marathon. I'm going to do that 10-kilometer race. And so then you line up with everybody and you pistol goes off, bang, and you start running the race. But then... Three steps in, you trip and fall on your face. Not to be deterred, you pick yourself up and about a half kilometer and you can feel that blister starting to form on your ankle. That's what we would call not auspicious beginning. <laughs> that is not an auspicious beginning to a race. Well, the series that we're starting to in the life of Moses, this first week I've chosen the title, An Auspicious 
beginning. Because I think that's what we see in the life, in the birth of Moses. But here's the problem. If you were to look at the events taking place around the birth of Moses, you would not perhaps use that word. Because the world that he was born into was anything but favorable for a Hebrew. Now, while there were some people who were trying to keep hope alive, there was no indication of future success for any of the Hebrews. But if we take a closer look, and if we can have eyes of faith to see what's taking place, I hope that as we look at this story today, that you will see where God was planting seeds of hope, seeds of new life, seeds of redemption that would grow into a prosperous, successful future. I hope that as we look at these things and and look at these truths, you'll actually be able to look at your own story as well. Because maybe you don't feel like you have an auspicious beginning. Maybe you feel like there is nothing good in the future. There's there's a limit, there's a ceiling to the success that I'm going to have, and I can see on the horizon it doesn't go beyond about here. Perhaps that's because when you were born, you were born with health conditions. And you think, nope, that was not an auspicious beginning. Perhaps you look at the broken family you come from and you feel like that is limiting your present and your future. Perhaps you currently have started school or job or, or have entered into a season of marriage where you didn't feel like you got off on the right foot. And you're like, you know what, the word auspicious just doesn't quite define where I'm at. If you find yourself there, I pray that as we look at the first chapters of the story of Moses today, that it will be an encouragement to you. I pray that as you look at this and see the encouragement that you'll come to understand that the situations of your past, the challenges of your present, do not determine your future. Especially when we walk in faith with God and can discover his good, pleasing, and perfect plan for each of us. So this is the life of Moses. A life that against all odds had an auspicious beginning. Now, to understand what I mean by that, we have to look at the time and the situation of where our story begins. And it begins actually not in Exodus, but in the final verses of the book of Genesis. And if you're familiar with how Genesis ends, you'll recall the story of Joseph. Joseph, who was the favorite son of Jacob, one of 12 sons. And and his brothers sold him into slavery in Egypt, and basically he was forgotten by his brothers. He was forgotten by the people he was in prison with, but he did not lose or forget his faith. In God. And as we learned in our last character study on Joseph, he was resilient in his faith, in the face of all those obstacles. And through it all, God's, through all of God's re- revelation, Joseph makes his way to the point where he's second in command in the whole land, second only to Pharaoh, the king of the land himself. And God allows him to be able to warn of an oncoming famine and to save the nation of Egypt and his family from this famine. And at the end of Genesis and the beginning of Exodus, chapter 1, Joseph and his family have moved to Egypt. Seventy people in all have moved to Egypt. And for the next 200 more years, generation after generation after generation, they fulfilled the command that was initially given in Genesis 1.28. Be fruitful. Increase in number. Fill the earth. And they were faithful to that command as they continued to grow in number and they continued to be very spread out throughout the region of Egypt. Well, Egypt continued to prosper as well. And a new king comes to power who thinks Joseph is old news, and he looks at this large number of people who live in his land, and he decides that they are a threat. In fact, they are so numerous, he figures that if they ever got their act together and they ever united, that they could rebel and take over the country. 
If they ever came together and joined with Egypt's enemies, they wouldn't stand a chance. Or if they left the country, it would, be such a, it, it would send things in such a, a tailspin that they wouldn't sure how to handle that many people leaving the country at once. And so he decides to deal shrewdly with all of these Hebrews who live in his land to prevent that from happening. And what does he do? He enslaves them. The king enslaves these people and subjects them to forced labor. And they enter into, after 200 or more years of living in Egypt, they enter into this long period, a state of severe race-based slavery that was brutal, took away all their rights. And it went on for a long, long time. Long enough that they were able to build two massive cities for Pharaoh. But the more the Hebrews were oppressed, the more they multiplied. And so to deal with this problem, the king decides that he needs to bring a population control into place to prevent the future uprising that may happen. He decides that to control the population, to control future uprisings against his, nature, his nation, he orders the Hebrew midwives to kill all of the Hebrew babies, boys that are born. Which puts these midwives between a rock and a hard place. Because they're in this situation where they have to choose who they're going to fear more. Are they going to fear Pharaoh, who is willing to kill babies, would not hesitate to kill them? Or are they going to fear God? Who, quite honestly, for the last couple hundred years, seems like he may have forgotten us. But these midwives, every time they deliver a new child, they see new life. Every time they deliver a child, they see the hope that still exists, even in that situation. And so they choose to fear and obey God more than the king. And they do not take the life that God has created. And God blesses them for it. Now Pharaoh hears that there's an awful lot of male Hebrew boys and toddlers running around. And so he brings them in and questions them. And he says, why have you done this? Why have you allowed the boys to live? And now the Hebrew midwives have their chance to act shrewdly with the king as they explain. Now king, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. See, Hebrew women are strong, not like Egyptian women. You see, they give birth and then they hide the babies before we can even arrive. Well, the king is not going to be deterred by these defiant midwives. And so he expands his order of infant side. We read in chapter 1, verse 22, that then the Pharaoh gave this order to his people. Every Hebrew boy that is born must be thrown into the Nile, but let every girl live. It's the same order. Kill all the Hebrew boys, but here's what changed. No longer are the midwives in charge of this. Now all of Egypt has been commissioned to this. Every soldier, every shopkeeper, every slave, every other mother is ordered to execute, to drown these baby boys in the Nile. This is the brutal, tragic time of ruthless persecution that does not seem very auspicious, but a time during which a man named Amram and a woman named Yohaved, both from the tribe of Levi, get married and they have a son. Now, like any other mother, Yohaved instantly loves her son. He's happy, he's, he's healthy, he's a fine child. There is no scenario by which she's going to kill him. And, and she knows, though, that if others hear or see him, that they could do so without any reprisal. So she hides him. It's a difficult task to hide a baby. 
especially as he starts to grow a little bit older. And until the time he's about three months when he's a little more active and he's awake longer and he cries more and he cries louder and it reaches a point where it's just too difficult to hide this beautiful baby boy any longer. And Yohaved faces a choice. She risks her entire family being caught and punished for this. Or she can find an alternative for her son. So in Exodus chapter 2, verse 3, we read this. That when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and she coated it with pitch and tar. And then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. And the child's sister, Miriam, stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Picture this in your mind. A mother weeps softly, prays intently as she crafts with her own hands this watertight vessel. And then she kisses and hugs her three-month-old son, places him in the basket, covers him with a blanket that she had sewn with her own hand while she was pregnant, and then gently pushes him into the river. She watches him float away. And she can't stand it. As he gets yards and yards further, she can't stand it. So finally she says, Miriam, follow him. See where where he ends up. And then young Miriam, staying back about 15 yards or so, just far enough that you aren't seen but can see, watches the basket bump off reeds as it continues its voyage down the Nile. Now for our Hebrew audience, there's foreshadowing in all this that, that we miss. You see, the Hebrew word teva only shows up two times in the Bible. Once here in reference to the basket and once in Genesis 6 in reference to Noah's Ark. It's the only time it's used. And to the Hebrew audience, when they see this scene taking place, they would have been reminded that in both of these people, they were born during a time of ruthless persecution, a ruthless time where people have been sentenced to tragic, watery fates. Hebrew people would have seen this word and it would have triggered for them that that both of these people were carried off to safety upon the very water that was to be their grave. Both in vessels made of tar and pitch. And both have been selected by God to forego death and to become future instruments of redemption. Now that's partially shrouded from us in the story in the language that we have. it's, It's partially hidden from us. But it's evidence already that God is at work behind the scenes. You see, the spot that Yohavet had chosen to place her son's ark afloat in the Nile was just downstream from the palace. And it just so happened that it was at that time that Pharaoh's daughter had gone down to the Nile to bathe. And she saw the basket, and she heard something that sounded, it sounded kind of like a child. And so she sends one of her attendants to go see what it is. And in verse 6, it says that when the basket came back to her, she opened it, and she saw the baby. And she had compassion on him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. This is the first time that anybody aside from the baby's own family had seen him. The first time, it's a princess. The daughter of the one who had ordered that he was to be thrown into the very river on which she currently stands. What will she do? Well, her heart is captured by the innocence of this child. And she breaks the pattern of cruelty and chooses life over death, chooses adoption over abandonment. And when Miriam, who's standing back a little while, sees that her brother has been rescued and not harmed, she she steps forward 
And, and her presence, as you can imagine, would have initially been an unwelcome surprise. But, but Miriam speaks and she goes, would you like me to get one of the Hebrew women to come nurse him for you? Now the princess knows that she's not able to care or, or feed the child herself. And so she feels delighted by her good fortune that this has been offered to her. So Miriam runs home, and as she runs in the door, you can imagine her mom is, is quick to say, what happened to my boy? Miriam says, I'll explain on the way, but you've got to come now. And moments later, Yohebed finds herself kneeling before a princess who's holding her baby. And don't miss the significance of this. As Pharaoh's daughter says to her, take this baby and nurse him for me, and I will pay you. And so the woman took the baby and nursed him. Do you see what just happened there? That is the first state-funded program for a mother to raise a child. <laughs> That's even better than $10 a day daycare, isn't it? <laughs> and for the next few years, the boy's mother raised him in the palace of the very king who sentenced him to death. And folks, in the midst of this pagan land, she would speak to him of God. In the midst of all this, she would tell him the stories of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. In the quiet of the palace nights, she would whisper the sacred name of Yahweh into his ear. Oh, moms and dads, grandparents. Can we pause on that for a minute? Do you do that for your kids? For your grandkids? Amidst the secular gods of our society, the, the, the prolific lures, the the growing materialism, the stories of self-determination. Who says to our children and grandchildren, remember, you're a child of God. Remember, you are loved by the Almighty. Remember, you were beautifully made and, and created with a purpose and you need never fear no matter what happens in this life because you are never alone because God is your strength. Oh, who speaks the sacred name of God into the ears of this generation? I pray that it would be us the mothers and fathers, the grandfathers of this church who would share with them the good news of Jesus Christ. I, I can promise you this, that we as a church will continue to do our part of sharing the good news. When you drop your kids at Sunday school, your youth at Wednesday night Bible studies, whenever we come into contact, we will continue to speak the name of God and share the good news of Jesus with them. But may it start in our homes as well. As Yohavid had this beautiful opportunity to speak life and hope into the ear of her baby in the palace of this king. Those were such critical years. Because when the child was old enough, when he was weaned, Yohaved had to give him up. And we read in verse 10 that when the child grew older, she took him out of she took him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. And she named him Moses. She said, "I named him Moses because I drew him out of the water." The princess chose a name for him that matched his story, at least the story as she knew it. But on a much deeper level, it actually matched the story of God's presence in Moses' life. You see, it's true, the princess did draw Moses out of the Nile River and bring him into her royal family, but it was God who drew him out of danger. It was God who would one day use him to draw the Israelites out of Egypt and to come to worship him and be his people. So that's where our story of Moses begins. As you look at these events, as you consider the story, do you consider it to be an auspicious beginning? And the way you answer that question can be approached a few different ways. 
You see, it's possible for people to hear or to see one thing and then draw conclusions completely different than other people. It's possible for one thing to mean a couple of different things. It's, it's possible to see one thing and believe another. Let me give you an example. If, if I simply do this, one simple move of a crossed finger, what does it mean? Well, my daughter works at a school for the deaf she works with deaf children. In that classroom, anybody know what this means? It's a letter of the alphabet. I'll give you a hint. This is the participation part. Right? It's a letter R. This means the letter R in sign language. If I'm at an Elks game, and they're close to scoring a touchdown for the first time this year, or if I'm waiting for the 50-50 number to come in, and I'm doing this, what am I doing? Aside from throwing my money away, what am I doing? <laughs> I'm, right, I'm making a wish. <laughs> it's wishful thinking. If you tell your son that he needs to clean his room and he does this, yes, mom, I will clean my room before dinner, what is he doing? Yeah, he's lying to your face. Okay? <laughs> he's just bold face lying to your face. It's one move. It means different things. If you were a first century Christian who lived in a place where Christianity was illegal and you walked down the street and somebody did this as you walked by, you understand that was the sign of the cross. And that they're trying to communicate to you, keep the faith, stay encouraged. So simple. Two fingers crossed over. Different ways to view it. When we look at the birth of Moses, we can view the story differently we too. Is there a timeless truth we can draw from it? Well, some people may look at it and say, look, it, it's all coincidence. Don't make too much out of it. They'd, they'd have more of a naturalistic view of, of a story such as this and the world around them. They'd say, look, here's the deal. Baskets float, rivers flow, people are generally good-natured. Yohaved just made a good choice. She was smart about it. She gave her son Moses the best chance possible, and it worked out. There are some who may view the story from that perspective. There are others who may say, well, it was just good fortune, you know, Good fortune smiled upon him that day. His, his lucky stars were aligned. Now, this is a, a move towards the spiritual. It's a more spiritual statement than perhaps the naturalistic worldview. And it's based upon the idea that, hey, you put good into the universe and you get good back. Karma. Some referred to as karma. And, you know, when we hear these things, sometimes it's warming our heart. Going, okay, well, I'm a good person, so I can expect good things. And, and we start to build a worldview around that. But, but here's one of the casualties of that worldview. It makes God, it paints this picture of God as being very cold and very impersonal. Because really, he has nothing to do with it. It's all about what you put in, you get back. It's, it's all about you, not really about God. It paints a cold, impersonal picture of God. But if you ask Yohaved, what happened? I think she would tell you that there was so much more meaning than just blind luck or good fortune taking place because she would tell you about her faith and a loving, personal God who is intimately involved every single step of the way. A God who protected the shrewd, selfless, God-fearing midwives. A God who softened the heart of a princess who chose to defy her father's cruelty. A God who gave courage and opportunity to a quick-thinking older sister. A God who honored a mother's faith and for fearing God more than an evil king. You put that all together. Midwives, a princess, a daughter, a mother. You put that all together, and what do you get? You get, you get to find that the classic proverb is true. Behind every great man is a great woman. Right? 
Is that the message? In this case, four women. Behind every great Moses is four great women. There's truth in that, but no, that's not the truth of the story. <laughs> I think the truth of the story is more reflective perhaps in, in words that we find Paul writing, who wasn't referring to this particular story, but was referring to this idea, this principle that we can pull from the story. And, the, and the, it is this, is that in this world you will have highs and you will have lows. You will have victories and you will have sorrows, but according to 2 Corinthians 5, 7, we walk by faith, not by sight. We walk with hearts that believe. We walk with eyes that choose to see that there is a loving, personal God who is active in your life. We can choose to see that. And when we hear incredible stories, and we've all heard these, these incredible stories of people, perhaps in our own lives, that make us stop and just go, wow, God, wow. Or not, because maybe we just chalk it up to coincidence. For example, a lady I know named Lee, who was on maternity leave and was having some income, but it was reduced because she was on maternity leave. Her husband had a decent job, but then he had his hours and his wage cut. And they found themselves in a spot where they had three kids, their cupboards were empty, they had limited income, and they didn't know what to do. So they prayed. And they prayed. And they prayed. And then one day, Lee sat down at her kitchen table, and she felt called by God to write down a grocery list of items they needed. Like specific items. To, like right down to not just crackers, but Nabisco crackers. Like right down to the brand. And she prayed. Again. And a half hour later, there was a knock on the door, and somebody dropped off groceries. Which in itself you might chalk up to be coincidence, because sure, the church heard they needed groceries, and somebody gave them groceries. But as she unpacked the bag of groceries, it matched her list by type and brand perfectly. What do we do with that? Coincidence? Lucky stars? Or wow, God? When Nadine and I were planning to move out to Edmonton to start going to school and to leave our lives in, in B.C., one of the problems we had was the vehicle I was driving at the time was, you know, it fit the time that we were in, the businesses that we had, but there was no way we could afford it when we got to Edmonton. The, the vehicle payment was more than our rent when we got here to Edmonton, but I was stuck in payments. So on the way to work one day, I was praying about, Lord, we got to deal with this. Lord, how do I deal with this? Lord, you just take control and help us resolve this. You've got us this far. You'll see us through this one. And I kid you not, the second I said amen, my cell phone rang. And it was a salesman I bought the car from who said, this might sound curious to you, but would you allow me to buy the car back from you? Anyone ever have that happen? I've had it happen once. <laughs> and we went in, and we knew what our budget was for, and we needed a van. Because we had three kids, one vehicle, van. We knew what our budget was. We left the end of that day with a van that was $5 under our budget. Coincidence? Maybe. Probably not. I choose to say, wow, God. You know, it's not just blind luck. If you look at this and, and you think that there is no God, that's what you'll chalk it up to. Make nothing of it. If you believe that God is a distant person, You'll just throw it out to the universe. You put out good, you get good back. You'll say that I did something right. But if you believe in a personal, loving God, which, by the way, is the only worldview that actually gives purpose to these events, actually gives meaning to these events, and actually communicates a sense of love and care to them, 
you can look at these events and go, wow, that is an auspicious beginning to that chapter. And see, when we experience these moments, we can feel the love and the presence of God in our lives. I'm sure people in this room have stories that they would love to share, and I encourage you to do so because they build encouragement in others. They build faith in others. They build the sense of God loves us. They sense that God is present amongst us. And they compel us to do things like fear God more than man. It compels us to do that, even at the cost of personal comfort and loss. When we share these stories, experience them, and see God in the midst of them, it compels us to obey God's word, even when it conflicts with the worldviews and the commands we see in the world. When we, present, when we acknowledge God's presence in our lives, it compels us to choose righteousness over sin, to clean up those parts of our lives that we hang on to and hide. It compels us to release them, even if it requires us to trust in power of God that is beyond ourselves. And when we see these stories, it compels us to trust God in every circumstance and believe that he honors those who honor him. So what about your story? Where do you see God? Moving, working, guiding, protecting. Because I promise you that he is. You see, the default way that the world tends to live is by chasing after worldly happiness and trying to find meaning in it. And now, there's nothing wrong with, with pleasures and possessions and status. It just, the Bible tells us, just don't be defined by those things. Don't, don't make that your ultimate goal. Don't, don't make that your purpose in life. But instead, as we read in Romans 12, verse 2, it says, Instead, don't be conformed by the patterns of this world. Rather, be transformed by the renewing of your mind, and then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will for you. What Paul means here by this idea of renewing of our mind is to have eyes to see God's presence in your story. Have a heart that discerns meaning from the fact that he is present, therefore he is personal, therefore he is loving, therefore he is for me and not against me, even though my situations may tell me otherwise. And then begin to understand what God's will is for our lives and join him in what he's doing. And as we join him, we discover what is truly good what is truly pleasing, perfect for your life. Now, against all odds, Moses had an auspicious beginning. And by definition, there's future success coming in this story. Last week, I encouraged you to see the seeds of hope, love, and compassion, and faithfulness that God might be planting in your life. If you missed last week's service, I encourage you to go back and watch it online. But then to, to take that encouragement, to look, to have eyes to seek, to see where is God planting seeds of hope, of love, of compassion, of faithfulness in my life. And then add to that a challenge this week, to take all those ways that you see God moving and to reflect upon your story and choose to see it as the movement of God in your life. Allow it to build your faith. Allow it to be defined in your life as an auspicious beginning for you. Now, he might be discouraged going, ah, I, I don't know, Mark, like, I think my ship has sailed. Beginnings are not too often for me anymore because I'm just, you know, too old for that. Next week, we're going to find out Moses got his calling when he was 80. We're not too old. I don't know, Mark, I, you know, there might be some things happening, but I don't have a lot of talent. I'm not qualified enough to, to do a lot of things, so my success rating is pretty low. Starting next week, we're going to see that God doesn't call the qualified. He qualifies the called. 
I've done too much wrong. God doesn't love me. God wouldn't have a plan for me. And if he did, I've already blown it. I'm just too bad. Really? Moses murders a guy next week. (laughs) And God still chooses to use him. God still chooses to bring new life in every season of our lives. We have all the reasons to see God present in our lives, to discern his will for us, and to join him in what he's doing. To walk not by sight, but by faith. Faith that God is moving, that there's a purpose. And if you don't currently have a relationship with Jesus where where you have that connection, let me suggest to you, it's not necessarily a coincidence that you're here today either. We have sung and we have talked about the goodness of God's love. We have talked about how Jesus, in their songs earlier, in the introduction to our new song, how Jesus came to pay the price for our sins, that we could have that relationship now and for all eternity. And so if you don't have that relationship in your life right now, I invite you to come and speak with me after service. If you're watching online, you can click uh, the, the prayer button or the raise your hand button online there, and somebody will be there to chat with you as well. But don't see it as a coincidence that you're hearing of God's love for you today. Step into it and see that God loves you, has a plan for you. And let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this story. The story that simply seems to be about the birth of a man who you would one day use powerfully. But God, there's so much more even at the beginning. So much more that even during these moments of difficulty, of strife, of struggle, of uncertainty, of fear that existed in the time of Moses' birth. Maybe, Lord, you know, different definitions of that, but we may feel that in our lives right now. I pray, God, that we would find hope today in that story to see that even in the midst of that, nothing is more powerful than you. Nothing can stop your movement. Nothing can prevent you from reaching your people that you have loved and called by your name. Lord, if there are those who are here present with us today or those who are watching online who are hearing the call of their name for the first time today, saying that Jesus will fill the hole in their life that they've been searching for. God, I pray that right now they would just respond and that they would pray along with me. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for paying the price for my sins. Thank you for loving me when I was unlovable. Thank you that even amidst the sense of hopelessness that we feel at times, we have hope in you because we have life in you. You gave your life for me. I give you mine. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.